white supremacy culture is the foundation of America. Um, it is built into the to the fabric of this country of every institution that that we have. And what that means is that there are policies, there are practices, there are cultural norms that favor and advantage white people. At the same time, it dehumanizes, it disadvantages, and it creates great harm to people of color. Let's begin. Blank paper and pen. Stories to tell. Battles to win. Deep breath and count to ten. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. What up, folks? This is Leroy Barber with Sit Up Podcasts, and we welcome you back. And again, thank you for following along this journey with us. Uh, you know you can reach us uh, at the Sit Up Podcast on Facebook. You can shoot questions and comments and critiques to me uh, at Leroy Barber on Instagram or, or on Twitter. Also on my Facebook, all the same, at Leroy Barber. You know this podcast is uh, produced by Andrew Morgan. Want to give a shout out to our producer. Uh, and uh, you hear his voice many weeks uh, helping and doing our interviews. Uh, so shout out to Andrew Morgan. And if you uh, need some podcast production, make sure uh, you, you check him out. The United Methodist Church uh, for the Greater Northwest Area, also shouting out to them uh, for producing and being a part of this work. Amina and Matt, obviously, uh, for giving us the background music that we use through their, their EP, Soul Graffiti. Also, a couple of announcements. Uh, April 25th, we are going to be uh, in Seattle at Seattle First. Uh, the United Methodists is sponsoring a pre-day conference as a part of the Inhabit Conference. So if you are in the Northwest or you're going to be in the Seattle area, on April 25th, 9 to 4, Seattle First, we have Melvin Bray from Atlanta going to do a day with us around power analysis. So if you are in the area, you need to make sure you're there. And also May 18th, Amina Brown and Matt Owen will be in Portland doing a show at Sunnyside United Methodist. So check all of that out. We'll get those announcements up uh, on our Facebook and on our Twitter. Uh, but uh, thanks again for following along. So today, what do you think about social workers? <laughs> uh, you know, it is a big field. It's vast and it, and it has many, many forms. But People generally have opinions about social workers, and I know I have my opinions, and mine were not the greatest until I met a really good one uh, who worked with us, Donna and I, uh, as we were uh, bringing uh, a, a new member of our family in through foster care, and uh uh, she was fantastic and actually changed my mind about social workers. Um, but what do you think about them? Also, what do you think about foster care in general? What do you what are your thoughts around that? Who what is that system and what does that system do? How does it help people? How does it stand for children? Are there still group homes? Did you know there were still group homes? There are still group homes and folks doing work in group homes. How does this connect 
to white supremacy. I, I know you don't know where that came from in that in that whole stream, do you? But how does this connect to white supremacy? What is it? What is white supremacy? And how does that connect to systems like foster care system? How do you deal with race? What, what's your thought about it? Do you deal with it? Do you talk about it? No? Yes? Like, is it something constantly coming up in your family? How do you deal with it? What's the role of white folks in solving issues around race and class? What's your role if you're a white person? What's your role if you're a person of color in solving the problem? Who were your teachers growing up? Who influenced your life? What are the people that made an impact that shaped some of what you are doing today? What about anti-racism? Is there a way to actually work against racism? What is that? How is that formed? How is that shaped? Who is involved in anti-racism work? And can I, can I access some folks that are doing that work? Our guest today uh, is, a, is a friend, John Trammell. Uh, met him a number of years ago, uh, but I'm very excited for you to hear and talk to and listen to John Trammell. This is Leroy Barber with the Sit Up Podcast. Let's begin. Maybe God is pro-choice. He gave each of us a will, a mind, a voice. And whether we will make statements, speak truth, or add to the noise is up to us. To take the dust we've been given. To treat our seconds like cents and watch how we spend them. To use our words like olive branches in the mouths of birds and watch where we send them. Take the negative thoughts we were taught. Take our wounded souls and hearts and let God... Mend them. Let's begin. Blank paper and pen. Stories to tell. Battles to win. Deep breath and count to ten. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Welcome into the Sit Up Podcast. I am your producer, Andrew Morgan. And as you just heard Leroy Barber's voice, we are here in Kansas City. And anytime we go out of town, I get the pleasure of meeting uh, some of Leroy's closest friends and some of the most innovative people. Now, if you're listening to the Sit Up Podcast, you know it stands for Sports Innovation Theology You, which is the ugly. And we're going to be covering a lot of the ugly today. And the last part is public discourse. That's your part. We always want you to participate. So make sure that if you got any show ideas or if you just want to tell us that you don't like you know, our points of view, we welcome it. So make sure that you are involved because this is your podcast. The Sit Up Podcast is for you. Now, your close friend of, of Leroy Barber, I want you to introduce yourself, please. Absolutely. My name is John Trammell. Um, I, uh, Leroy and I go back um, many years in Atlanta, spending working in community together there. Um, and so we've been apart for a little while since he's been living in Portland and I've been living in Kansas City, but we maintain a, a really close uh, connection. He's a mentor in my life. Um, obviously he, he, he married, uh, my partner and I, uh, did the wedding ceremony. So just really love Leroy a lot and, and respect the work he does across the country and so much of 
his philosophy and his way of life, uh, living life has influenced me significantly. So I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be connected to, to the podcast today and, and share some thoughts of my own. All right. So before we get into the meat of things, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about yourself, your family makeup and, sure. and some of the things that you're doing outside of uh, the social justice. Like, what are you doing here in the place we're recording? Where's your work site? So tell me a little bit about what you're doing sure. for a living and, and your family structure. Absolutely. So I've, I've been in social work for over 20 years. That's my background. Um, it's taken me in a lot of different directions over time. I've been involved in direct service work for, for folks in communities, youth, children, families. Um, I've worked in social change, social justice uh, organizations. I've done community organizing. I've done community development type work. I mean, it's a very broad experience in the, in the realm of kind of social work, social change work. Currently, I am uh, an associate director of a nonprofit in Kansas City called Drum Farm Center for Children, and we provide... Um, wraparound services and support services for children in foster care, as well as young adults who are overcoming homelessness and housing instability. We provide counseling, we provide educational support and housing as well. Um, and we do that in a family care model with our the children in foster care. So they live in foster homes on our campus and we support them with the wraparound services um, for to really provide that close-knit support to them. The, the youth live in independent living apartments that we own, and then we provide that same wraparound support to them, helping them build the, the skills, resources, and remove the barriers that are in their way to becoming successful, sustainable adults. So I have a, a real quick question before you really kind of continue. Uh, as it relates to the foster care system, sure. when it comes to children of color, uh, what's the typical outcome? Uh, is it harder for them to be placed in the foster systems? And um, also, what typically happens to these children after mm. they turn 18? So, um, you know, it is it is a very complex system. And obviously, when it comes to uh, race and because racism, you know, exists in all of our systems, I believe white supremacy and racism is is infiltrated into all systems the child welfare system obviously uh, has that has that racism bet embedded in it so I, I mean children of color are removed more frequently from their their parents uh, when a hotline is made so the, it, there's an overrepresentation of children of color in the child welfare system obviously um, and so uh, those children are, are placed I, I think in general, uh, child, older children, children older older than the age of five to seven to ten years old, and particularly boys and particularly African American children, um, typically are, are harder to place. And I think a lot of that de- comes with uh, implicit bias of foster families, white foster families that may think, you know, have conscious or unconscious ra- uh, race beliefs that are negative towards kids of color. Um, and then, you know, obviously those kids sometimes spend uh, more extensive time in a group home, like an institutional setting or a residential setting um, or a shelter, which is not um, doesn't isn't able to really give them the skills of and the the experience of family life. Even though they're not with their bio family, it's most important for kids in the system to be with a family so they can continue to experience the bond of family, to learn trust. And when kids don't get that and they're in an institution or in a uh, kind of a group home or a residential setting, that is detrimental to their ability to be successful um, going forward. And so, yeah, that definitely disproportionately affects kids of color, absolutely. And it, it is a, a travesty in the system that we have to continue to disrupt and, and to work to change. 
So I want to take it back to something you said just a second ago, and I need an explanation on. Sure. What exactly is a system of white supremacy by your definition? Yeah. So for me, uh, white supremacy culture is the foundation of America. Um, it is built into the to the fabric of this country of every institution that that we have, and what that means is that there are policies, there are practices, there are cultural norms that favor and advantage white people. At the same time, it dehumanizes, it disadvantages, and it creates great harm to people of color. This is happening all around us all the time, and sometimes in, in unconscious and small ways, and sometimes obviously in great, you just tr tragic ways, but it's happening all around us on a continuum um, that, you know, and, and as white folks, we're taught not to pay attention to that. We're taught that that doesn't exist, and we shouldn't see ourselves as racialized as white or, you know, but yet we are taught to view people of color um, in different ways and to group people of color into overgeneralizations about who they are in ways that is, once again, dehumanizing and harmful. And so it's a, both a practice of individuals as well as systems and the way systems operate to uh, continue to hold people down and hold people back, particularly people of color. Uh, in in America, in this context, in which I've I've spent all of my life, um, I will I'll use one analogy because I feel like this is the analogy I, I use to, to describe systems of oppression, and particularly white supremacy culture. It's like being in a flooded community, and we're all in this community together. And some of us are on on higher ground than others. Some of us may not even be getting our feet wet, while others are about to drown. Um, but we all ex see the flood, we experience the flood, and if we really, depending on where we're situated in that flood, we, we, it's like we may have a choice to notice it or not. But once we notice it and pay attention to it, then we are required to do something about it. And it, it is our role, our responsibility to address the flood. But also, it is also our role and responsibility to realize that we're standing in the flooded waters holding a water hose on full blast. Because we are also contributing to the flood with our own attitudes, our own beliefs, our own behaviors that are, is reinforcing white supremacy culture. And if we don't address the water hose as well as the flood, then we'll never end white supremacy in, in, in America and it will continue to devastate lives um, day in and day out. What do you say to the person who says, well, it's too much. It's just too much for me to be able to focus on ending this hose as well as then doing other things to help people uh, onto this platform that I have that is dry. You know, and I would say to folks, first of all, like that's a luxury. If we if it's too much and we can actually have we have a choice to not do anything about it, that is actually a luxury and a privilege that probably is coming from people who are pro predominantly have privilege based on their race, based on being white, based on their class based on you know their situatedness to power and resources that allows them to to not have to deal with this um, you know and and also too there's a ways in which white supremacy is is perpetuated you know I'm a social worker and it can be perpetuated by that savior mentality you know which is still reinforcing a supremacy right that I believe that I uh, I'm inherently have the gifts and the talents and you inherently are lacking and I'm here to save and support you as opposed yeah. to, you know, Lilla Watson, the Aboriginal elder and activist in, in Australia. She says, if you've come here to help, 
you're wasting your time. But if you come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Right. And if if that's not our if that's not the the spirit in which we are coming into relationship with each other uh, across race and dealing with and, and working to eradicate white supremacy culture or or patriarchal culture from from a, man, a male standpoint, if we're not doing that in that spirit of knowing that my own liberation is also bound up with the people who are most oppressed. Maybe the ways in which white supremacy impacts me as a white middle class, you know, cisgendered heterosexual male, like I have a lot of privilege and the ways in which white supremacy impacts me is very different, obviously, and, and, and to, to no extent close to how it impacts uh, people of color, for instance. Um, but I'm still impacted. It's choking. Literally, it chokes the soul of white people white supremacy does because it teaches us to dehumanize other people, to lack empathy, to lack concern for someone's plight in life, which empathy is a, is a, a huge part of the human condition to care for somebody and to be able to sort of see what they're going through and, and care about that. And when we're taught to disconnect ourselves from our ability to empathize, we are being dehumanized in the process. So now you're connected, you're choosing, you're making a conscious uh, decision to put apathy to the side and be connected. So let me ask you this question on a personal level. Sure. How many, uh, in all situations, both when you're with your white family and when you're around your your brothers and sisters of color, how uncomfortable are you since you have this, since you're awake to this idea? How often does this put you in uncomfortable places and positions on both ends of the spectrum? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that we're all on a journey here. None of us have arrived. None of us will arrive. We will never make it to a place where we can say we are free from the impacts of white supremacy culture in our in our in our beliefs and our attitudes. We we work hard to eradicate those things. But I am as imperfect today as I've ever been, and I continue to make mistakes. Um, sometimes that that those mistakes happen in a lot of different ways. Um, but it's you know. Particularly, you know, so like around white folks, white folks are taught not to think about these things, that we shouldn't talk about them. If we just don't talk about them, they'll just go away. They won't exist, right? And that's absolutely not true. Once again, it's a luxury to, to be able to have a moment to not talk about it because, because we don't have to experience it if we don't want to. So when I bring these things up and I push uh, myself and others to, to deal with these issues and to focus on, hey, White supremacy is real. It's happening all around us. Here's what we have to do in our own lives. It's uncomfortable because, you know, sometimes I'm the person at the at the social gathering that people decide they don't want to talk to because John's going to bring this up most likely or, you know, whatever. And but I'm also I can I can be agitated and uncomfortable when other white folks doing anti-racism work provide me some accountability and some feedback about things they, you know, experience from me. So that. Um, and also too, you know, um, I think my relationships, um, with people of color, it, there's times where it's uncomfortable because we're in a moment where there's some microaggression that takes place in, in when we're all together and just knowing that I may or may not handle that in a way that's the most supportive or, or useful to, to friends of color that are there, you know? And so, yeah. you know, there's ways in which all of this, it, it's, it's a constant um, struggle and challenge, but like being able to work through that and to build that trust with each other and support each other 
and and once again be be working in on this kind of collective mutual liberation um i wouldn't have it any other way you know yeah. i think it's it's been life-changing to my life in so many ways and so many of the relationships that i have uh, particularly with people of color have made my life so much more rich and, and amazing than it ever would have been had i you know you know push myself into a homogeneous space of you know white folks and that's all i did well, a lot of people push themselves into that place and they use nationalism or pride as a reason to be in those places. Do you find yourself maybe ever missing or longing for or have a desire to be a part of some of those things? Because when they, you know, like you'll see a person who's from the South say, you know, I love my flag. Like I love the Mississippi flag or I or I like the, the idea of saying make America great again. Do you ever find yourself saying, well, you know, is that an urge you have to resist or do you find yourself being in a situation where like you say, man, sometimes I'll just want to be in relationship with people like me who, even though they're doing that, is that ever a temptation? You know, not, I would say it's never really a temptation for me because I've gotten to a place where I understand that America hasn't been great yet. Right. <laughs> it's, right. you know, there's no make it great again. I mean, maybe we should make it great at some point. That would be ideal, but it hasn't been great. Right. Like if, if you if you were a person of color, particularly uh, an a person of African descent or, or an indigenous uh, person in a tribe uh, on this right. land, it it wasn't great and it hasn't been great. And it's still not great. If you're if you're an immigrant who's come from Central and South America recently to try to find a better life for your family, this is not a great time. It is not being made great as we speak for for our 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 siblings of immigrant status in this country. And so for me, um, you know, I think like being in re close relationship with people of color and, and with immigrants and with people who identify as Muslim and, and the ways in which our country is actively harming and seeking to change policy and practice in a way to continue to harm folks who identify in those ways is, is, is scary. It is, is awful. It is heart wrenching. And to me, like if I ever desired, like, you know, could I, obviously I, as a, as a white middle-class man, once again, I have the choice to just ignore that and belly up. I say belly up to the bar of white supremacy to pick, get my stool is waiting for me if I want to sit back down. Yeah. Um, but I realized that like, like I've had, I've, I've had too much experience and know and, and seen the ways in which it has changed my life for the better to be doing this work and, and working in con in partnership and in collaboration. Uh, and, and as a co-conspirator is my hope is that I'm yeah. a co-conspirator to eradicate these systems of oppression with my, uh, siblings of, of color, with immigrants, with the LGBTQIA community, you know, across the board and all the ways that I have privilege, I want to be working in partnership and co-collaboration and really following the leadership of people of color, following the leadership yeah. Uh, of folks who are oppressed. So what is that like? Because I, I, I'm witnessing this more and more. Like as me and Leroy have traveled around, we're starting to see more and more leaders of color with uh, with white lay leaders and, and staff, you know, more diverse staffs. But people are starting to see that if there's going to be any social justice change, that people of color need to be in positions of leadership. When did that kind of idea click in with you um, that it's okay to be under a leader of color and that it's almost necessary. Did, when did that kind of come to you? 
you know, I mean, so, I mean, from a, like a, a conscious thought, I would yeah. say that did, it probably was, Leroy was a leader in my life, yeah. you know, 17 years ago. Um, and so that was definitely a conscious thought at that point of like, I'm following the leadership of this man of color and his partner, his wife is a, a woman of color who also was in a leadership role at times in my life, um, in both formal and informal ways. Um, and they continue to be people I look to for leadership and for um, feedback on you know, ways in which I can continue to be the best person I can be as a white man doing this work around anti-oppression. Um, so that would be formally. I would say, though, that informally and sort of unconsciously, I mean, I grew up in a more racially diverse community in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, my high school, when I graduated, was probably over 50% kids of color and 40-something percent white students. Um, I had a lot of teachers of color. I mean, my second grade teacher was an African-American woman. My fourth grade teacher, my sixth grade teacher, all black women in my life who, you know, I remember my sixth grade teacher, Miss Carney, like, I mean, talking to my mom at parent-teacher conference and saying, you know, well, John's my son too. Um, and I, that, I will never forget that. Like that was a huge, but, but you have, but I was wrestling with also too, like a larger community of white supremacy too. So like there was conflicting things happening in my mind as a kid, most of which was unconscious. You know, my family wasn't, my family was overtly caring for anybody. You know, we had friends of color in our lives, even as, my family life. So my parents didn't use racial slurs or promote those sort of things, but it was all around me in the broader community. And so I had friends who used racial slurs. I had friends, families who did, and I, I witnessed that and experienced that while I was also witnessing Miss Carney, this African-American woman who said, who called me like her son, which is a very intimate connectedness. Yeah. So I, I learned from an early age from that experience that I'm sure to some extent, I don't, I can't say with certainty how impactful yeah. that was, but I would imagine that helped me move along the spectrum of being open to that. Yeah. But a lot of white people don't have that experience yeah. and, and we, and we aren't taught, we're taught that, you know, obviously the broad general stereotypes is that, is that, you know, part of racism and anti-blackness is that black people are less this and less that, and, you know, less ability, have less ability to lead, um, People don't want to say that out loud, but that's what white supremacy teaches. Right. It absolutely is. So tell me a little bit about um, the program that you have here in Kansas City. Uh, you were telling me a little bit about it. I believe you said the name was Surge. Yes. Uh, so um, showing up for racial justice, S-U-R-J, um, is, it's actually a national network of anti-racist organizers across the country who are see it as the role of white people to engage, educate, and mobilize other white people for racial justice. And so it's not an exclusive thing, but what it means is, is that people of color are leading work to, to, for liberation in, in their own communities, in their own lives. And many times white people try to come into that space unprepared and really un, uneducated on how to best be in that space and, and be co-conspirators with people of color. And so Serge's work is to really say it's white people's responsibility to educate ourselves, to hold each other accountable, and to help each other be ready and prepared to show up and support in collaboration with, with our siblings of color 
to do this work. So that's kind of the framework. It's um, looking at political education. How do we educate ourselves on the political nature of how white supremacy has shown up through the years and how it continues to show up? How do we support each other in growing and doing that internal work of looking at our own attitudes, our own beliefs, our own behaviors that are detrimental and continue to allow us to contribute to this in a negative way, to collude with it, um, and, and go along with white supremacy. So helping us to eradicate that in ourselves. And then solidarity action is the third piece, which is how do we show up to people of color-led movement work in a way that is, that is um, beneficial and is making a difference and is helping to de- deconstruct and disrupt um, the system. All right. Well, that's our time for today. If there's anything else you want to say before we get out of here. Well, I'm just grateful for the opportunity uh, always and uh, really appreciate all y'all do in your podcast and in the work in the community. And I'm, I'm grateful to do this, this small part of that. Yeah, so. we're, we're happy to have you, man. Thank yeah. you for the knowledge and thank you for everything. Yeah. Thanks all so right. much. All right. Live life like you know